0: This morning's scripture reading comes from Mark, chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. Please follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me as I read the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's ask the Lord for his help. Father, in these coming moments, I pray that you might work powerfully by your Spirit to make much of your glorious Son to the edification of your saints and to the conviction of those who do not yet believe. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Bobby was spending the weekend with his grandmother who decided to take him to the park on Saturday morning. It had been snowing all night and everything was beautiful. His grandmother remarked, doesn't it look like an artist painted this wonderful scenery? Did you know that God painted this for you, Bobby? Yes, he said, and I know he did it all with his left hand. A bit confused, Bobby's grandmother asked, What makes you say God did this all with his left hand? Well, said Bobby, we learned in Sunday school last week that Jesus is sitting on God's right hand. We can all get a chuckle out of a child's obvious misunderstanding of what the Bible means when it speaks of Jesus sitting on God's right hand. Yet the truth is that many adult Christians are hazy on the real significance of this biblical imagery. The same could be said for things like the title, the Son of Man, and the metaphor of riding the clouds of heaven. Thought it might be helpful then to spend some time on these things this morning. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. Our scripture reading set the stage in verses 53 to 65. I want to use the majority of our time to look more closely at verses 60 to 64, but allow me to make a few preliminary remarks on the setting of our text. In the days prior to his arrest, Mark tells us that Jesus entered Jerusalem to praise from the crowds, drove the money changers out of the temple while refusing to say by what authority he did such things, and directed a parable of divine judgment against the religious leaders. Small wonder they wanted him dead. But arranging to have Jesus executed was a delicate matter. On the one hand, the Sanhedrin didn't have the authority to put someone to death. Only Rome could do that. And that would require a political charge. On the other hand, unless they had a solid religious charge against Jesus, the people would revolt. They didn't have the twofold charge they needed. Because there was no formal charge, Jesus technically wasn't on trial here. Think of it as our grand jury process, where it's decided whether or not there's probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed. When our scene opens in Mark 14, they're still looking for something to pin on Jesus. Since time was of the essence, they decided to crowdsource. Mark tells us many witnesses came forward with various accusations against Jesus, but none of them could agree on anything. Enter the high priest Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas was not a patient man. You might recall the scene in John 11 where religious leaders were discussing what to do about Jesus after he had raised Lazarus from the dead. When their banter didn't produce a solution quickly enough, Caiaphas interrupted his colleagues to inform them that they knew nothing at all and that Jesus would simply have to die. Caiaphas was no more patient here. He was frustrated that witnesses couldn't agree on a crime. He was frustrated that Jesus was silent in the face of various charges leveled against him, and Caiaphas knew he was running out of time. He'd had enough when we come to verse 60. Mark writes, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Jesus gave Caiaphas the political confession he needed when he rather casually affirmed that he was the Messiah, a claim to be a king. Rome would tolerate no challenge to Caesar's throne. So now they had the political charge they needed to bring to Pilate. But what about the religious charge they needed? Notice the strange response of Caiaphas beginning in verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? Caiaphas charged Jesus with blasphemy, a religious offense, but the claim to be Messiah was not blasphemy. Many had made such a claim for themselves, and they received no such verdict. They certainly weren't put to death for it. So what exactly did Caiaphas hear? Mark gives us a clue earlier in his gospel. Turn with me to chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 through 7. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Notice the connection, blasphemy is linked with claiming the prerogatives of God, here the prerogative to forgive sins. Mark wants us to see something similar is going on in chapter 14. The scene we just read and our scene in chapter 14 are the first and last confrontations between Jesus and his religious opponents. Scribes are mentioned in both scenes. In both scenes, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. So when Jesus' critics accuse him of blasphemy in both scenes, it's likely that both scenes refer to the same sort of offense. I submit to you that that offense is not some sort of messianic claim, but rather claiming the prerogatives of God. Look again at the latter half of verse 61. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and. Notice how quickly Jesus moved on from affirming that he was indeed the Messiah. I am, and. In effect, he's saying, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but about that, I'm not the kind of Messiah you have in mind. In fact, he was claiming to be far more than Messiah. How so? The answer lies in Jesus' fusion of three Old Testament images all found in verse 62. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Let's unpack the first image, the Son of Man. It's a popular misconception that the title Son of Man refers simply to Jesus' humanity. It's true that the common phrase son of man is often used by Old Testament writers to speak of human frailty, but this is decidedly not the way it's used in the vision of Daniel chapter 7. Hold your finger and mark and turn with me to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 1 through 14, lays out a vision consisting of two parts. The first part refers to four beasts that represent successive empires wielding dominance over Israel. Then the second part pictures a judgment scene where God's people finally experience victory and his kingdom is handed to an enigmatic figure like a son of man. Let's pick up this judgment scene in verse 9. Keep this imagery of a heavenly court in mind and skip down to verse 13. "'I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him.' His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In contrast to the four beasts in the first part of the vision, here we see a human figure with divine attributes given all judgment authority and an everlasting kingdom. In short, This one, like a son of man, is a divine human figure who will one day judge everyone and rule everything. Hold that thought as you flip back to Mark 14. In verse 62, Jesus essentially says, yeah, I'm the Messiah, but that's not all. I'm also the son of man. I'm the divine human figure from Daniel 7, the one who, at the conclusion of history, will preside over the highest court ever convened. So, esteemed Sanhedrin, you might think you sit in judgment over me here tonight, but I've got news for you. You are the ones who are on trial. How's that for irony? How's that for a veiled threat? You can see how this alone would have been sufficient to give Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin fits. But Jesus was just getting started. Not only did he claim to be Daniel's son of man, Jesus also claimed he would be seated at the right hand of power. Here's the right hand imagery that a lot of Christians are fuzzy on. That's unfortunate since the New Testament makes kind of a big deal out of it. In fact, the Old Testament text that lies behind this image is quoted or alluded to in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament text. Over 20 times the New Testament authors refer to it. This implies that it was foundational to the earliest apostolic witness about Jesus. In fact, I would suggest that it was key to the first Christian's understanding and proclamation of his true identity. Let's look at this text. Please turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Let's read the whole thing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This whole psalm makes some remarkable statements about a forthcoming descendant of David, but by far the most remarkable thing is said in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. To be sure, there's value in wrestling with an Old Testament text on its own terms before looking at the way New Testament authors applied it but we don't have time to do that this morning. I'd like to make a few quick observations though. The text might sound a little confusing at first since it uses the word Lord twice. The Lord says, to my Lord. Your translation probably has the first occurrence of the word Lord in small caps. That's because it's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name of the covenant God of Israel. So David, who is writing, is saying that his God is speaking. The person God is speaking to is called Adoni in Hebrew and generally refers to a human lord or master. Here it refers to the Messiah who will be born in the line of David. In some way, this person would be lord over even David. This was a real head-scratcher for the Jewish leadership. And Jesus had some fun with this in Mark chapter 12. Turn with me there. Mark chapter 12, let's pick up in verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. How could this person be both a son of David and Lord over David? It seems the scribes had no answer for this. They apparently had no theological category for such a person. Indeed, as we're about to see, when Jesus applied Psalm 110 to himself, he shattered the category the Sanhedrin had for Messiah. Yes, he was the Messiah, but much more. How much more? Infinitely more. Jesus said, you will see me seated at the right hand of power. There are several facets to this theologically loaded statement but I want to focus on the one that I think is most illuminating in this particular context. Mark only specifically mentions one charge brought against Jesus by the various witnesses paraded before him. Verse 58 says, Some claim to hear him say he'd destroy this temple made with human hands. Initially, Jesus refused to respond to this charge, but now I think he does so in a roundabout way Nevertheless, a way that Caiaphas hears loud and clear. Herod's temple in Jerusalem was built with various walls that formed a set of concentric rings, if you will, simultaneously decreasing in size and escalating in levels of restriction. The outermost wall was called the wall of partition, and only Jews, both men and women, were allowed through. Latin and Greek inscriptions warned quite literally that you'd have your own self to blame for your death if you ignored this restriction. Moving inward, the next area lay behind the so-called Nicanor gate which only Jewish men could pass through. Inside of that came the entrance to the sanctuary which only priests in garb, in other words priests on duty, could use twice a day to burn incense. Finally, that the innermost ring was the entrance to the Holy of Holies, the place of God's special presence on earth. Only one man, the high priest, could enter this space once a year, the Day of Atonement. He had to change his garments and undergo ritual washings. He had to carry in the blood of a bull for his own sins and the blood of the goat for the people's transgressions. If anyone, including the high priest, entered the Holy of Holies in any other way on any other day, he was struck dead. The teaching was simple but profound. God's presence was entered temporarily, infrequently, and cautiously. As a matter of fact, the majority of the members of the Sanhedrin assembled at the home of Caiaphas that night had never even seen the inside of the Holy of Holies. Hold that thought and consider one more thing. According to Hebrews 9, that earthly holy of holies, with all of its restrictions, was patterned after the heavenly holy of holies. The upshot is that when Jesus said he'd be seated at the right hand of power, which is just another way of saying God… He was saying to the Sanhedrin, I will go directly into God's presence in the heavenly holy of holies. I will require no ritual clothing or washings. I will need the blood of neither bulls nor goats. Not only that, when I go in, I'll sit down there. In other words, I'm going to live there. I'm not going to leave. And you can't even go into this earthly holy of holies. And you're challenging me. Today we'd say that this thoroughly triggered the Sanhedrin. Now you you might be wondering why Jewish leaders deeply steeped in what we call the Old Testament were so triggered by Jesus' particular use of it. How could they be so far removed from what Jesus was saying about the nature of the Messiah? And that would be a fair question. I think the answer partly lies in the way that Jesus linked the Son of Man in Daniel 7 and the right hand imagery in Psalm 110. As they stand alone, they might be seen to be a bit ambiguous. But together, one interprets the other and creates a new messianic category in which Jesus is the exclusive member. Take Daniel 7 and it's enigmatic and mysterious Son of Man. It wasn't really known who or what this figure would be. But when read alongside Psalm 110, this mysterious son of man is revealed to be a concrete human being born in the line of David, destined to sit at God's right hand. Now take Psalm 110. When read alone, it was understood to be a text referring to a future Messiah who was a mere earthly ruler, honorarily extended fellowship at God's right hand. But when read alongside Daniel 7, Psalm 110 goes beyond a position of honor granted to a mere human to a position assumed by a divine human figure with exhaustive and everlasting authority. I think the late scholar R.T. France was right when he said that the total effect of these two passages was greater than the sum of the parts. So I'll cut the Sanhedrin a little slack here. They had no idea what was coming. What's more, they were half right. If Jesus claim that Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 met and found fulfillment in him were not true, it would have been blasphemous. But here's the rub. Because these statements made by Jesus about himself were true, Because he was indeed God's co-regent, exercising the prerogatives of God, the Jewish leaders were the ones who were actually guilty of blasphemy here. A little more irony thrown into the mix. The final image I want to address, the image of riding the clouds of heaven, is actually part of our Daniel 7 passage about the Son of Man. But Jesus separates the cloud riding from the Son of Man statement sticking the right-hand imagery of Psalm 110 in the middle. There might have been a particular reason Jesus split the Daniel 7 images like this, but we can't be sure. Nevertheless, I think there's good reason to treat the image of riding the cloud separately here. It ties a nice bow on everything we've covered so far. You might recall that in Exodus 32, Moses erupted in a fit of rage and smashed the original tablets on which God had written his law. Then, in Exodus 34, God called Moses back up to Mount Sinai so he could inscribe his law on new tablets. Listen to the words of Exodus 34, 4 and 5. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. The original cloud carried more than pictures and playlists. It carried none other than the God of Israel. Consider one more text. Here are the words of Psalm 104, 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with the garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, he makes the clouds his chariot. The wording here is a bit different than Exodus, but the picture is the same. When God Almighty travels, he chooses to go by cloud. I just gave you two examples, but if you were to trace this image of riding the clouds through the Old Testament, you'd see that it's either reserved for the God of Israel or used as a description of pagan gods. The idea is that the one riding the clouds is always more than human. Of course, Jesus wasn't claiming to be a pagan god. The only remaining option is that by applying the image of riding clouds to himself, he was claiming to be nothing less than equal with Yahweh. He was claiming that he was no less than God himself, exercising all the prerogatives of God himself. Perhaps now it's a little clearer why Caiaphas tore his garments. Speaking of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, when Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and riding the clouds of heaven, when did he mean they would see these things? That is, when would they see that Jesus' claims about himself were true? I think this is one area where the tension between the already and the not yet is helpful. What do I mean by this already, not yet tension? Simply that some kingdom realities are already true in one sense now, but have not yet reached their truest expressions. For example, 1 John 3, 2 tells us, we are God's children now, but when Jesus appears, only then will we be like him. So it's quite biblical to say that if you're in Christ this morning, you're already redeemed, but not yet redeemed. Now, let's apply this paradigm to Jesus' claims in Mark 14, 62. When Jesus says, you will see, our minds immediately go to the second coming, and rightly so. Surely Jesus will sit in judgment over the members of the Sanhedrin in the eschaton. So in one sense, his vindication has not yet been revealed. But the New Testament also declares that God already placed his stamp of approval on Jesus when he raised him from the dead. So in another sense, the Sanhedrin didn't need to wait too long to see proof of Jesus' claims. They saw it in the empty tomb. And they saw it in the explosive overnight growth of the church. What do you suppose ran through their minds when 120 Jews were added to the church in Acts chapter 1? 3,000 more souls were added in chapter 2. About 5,000 more were added in chapter 4. And chapter 21 has the church elders exclaiming, see how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. Seeing the explosive overnight growth of the church on the heels of the empty tomb, they should have realized that the hammer had indeed already dropped even though it had not yet fully landed what a heavy fate awaits them but what about us what are some practical ramifications of all this let me start by saying that the jesus we have seen this morning is the slaughtered exalted lamb we proclaim to a lost and dying world the good news is more than jesus loved sinners and died for their sins yes jesus loved sinners of course his death atoned for sins But the good news is also that God definitively declared the vindication of His Son by raising Him from the dead and exalting Him to His right hand, from where He sends the Spirit to whomever He will, and from whence He will return again to reverse the effects of all those sins for which He died and establish His perfect, everlasting kingdom. Yet so much of today's evangelism leaves the impression that Jesus simply carried a lamb in one hand and used the other to sprinkle happy dust everywhere he went. But the sobering, glorious reality is that he is the risen, reigning, and returning King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's make sure people know that. This is not only the Jesus we preach to the lost. This is also the Jesus we preach to ourselves. This should affect the way we worship. When we lift our voices and raise our hands in praise to the Son, is our vision of Him big enough? Do we see Him as the fully divine, fully human figure, seated on the very throne of heaven, the one who stands as judge and yet has mercifully fully pardoned those who belong to Him? When our oldest daughter, Katie, was young, she adored horses. I think she was three or four of the year we bought her a stuffed life sized toy pony she later named Molly. On Christmas morning, we set Molly next to the fireplace and called Katie to come down from her bedroom. You could hear her feet moving as fast as they could go. She ran to the entrance of the family room, saw the large toy horse, and immediately stopped in her tracks. She stared across the room. Her eyes grew big with wonder. It were as if she couldn't believe what she was seeing. And a few moments later, when she had recovered, she ran to Molly and squeezed her neck. I recently remembered that morning, now so many years ago, and wondered, when is the last time that my vision of Jesus was so breathtaking that I was frozen in my steps? When is the last time in worship I pictured the exalted reigning Christ and thought to myself, He is so overwhelmingly glorious I can hardly believe it. One day we will literally gaze upon the enthroned king with wonder and amazement. Maybe we should see our worship as practice for that moment now. I would also submit to you that this is the exalted Jesus we should preach to ourselves in the midst of suffering. I find it instructive that when Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts 7, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There's our right hand imagery. The Spirit gives Stephen a vision of Jesus in the position of supreme power and authority, a reminder that the already vindicated Jesus was in complete control even as Stephen was being martyred. What's more, Jesus isn't seen seated, but rather standing at the right hand of God. In part, this has to do with Jesus' role as judge as he rises to show his acceptance of Stephen's testimony that got him killed. But I don't think this is the full explanation. The exalted Son of Man is still the man of sorrows. And I think he also stands here to receive Stephen in his affliction And keep his focus where it needs to be as he suffers. Let us never forget, especially in our anguish, that the exalted, omnipotent Jesus is one we can trust to command our destinies. That every evil which befalls us will one day wither under his searing judgment. And that as Hebrews tells us, he is not a high priest unacquainted with or uninterested in our pain. He might even stand to take notice of it. We're empty nesters now, but when our girls were young and they became frightened, I would say, oh no, Jesus must have fallen off his throne. And Emily would say, don't be silly, Daddy. Jesus can't fall off his throne. So I'd reply, well, then there's nothing to be afraid of, is there? Emily went to be with the Lord six months ago at the age of 17. I'd be lying if I said I haven't had some hard days since then. One day, just a few weeks ago, as I was preparing this sermon, in fact, I seemed to be paralyzed by grief. I couldn't write, I couldn't even think. Like C.S. Lewis once noted, intense grief often feels like fear, and it had me in its grip. I asked the Lord for His help when suddenly Emily, though dead, still spoke. I heard that little girl's voice echo in my head saying, don't be silly, Daddy. Jesus can't fall off His throne. There's nothing to be afraid of, is there? i followed Jesus for 35 years. I'm ashamed to admit that I haven't acquired nearly the wisdom I should have in that time. But at least one thing has become increasingly clear to me. When life kicks you in the teeth and drops you to your knees, this is the Jesus you want to see when you look up. The glorious, majestic, all-powerful Jesus who is in sovereign control of everything we experience in this fallen world and who stands in rapt, empathetic attention in our most bitter sufferings. I found ultimate comfort nowhere else. There are some heavy implications that emerged from our text this morning. As we conclude, we now reach the most sobering implications of all. The Sanhedrin was, and in a sense still is, on a collision course with Jesus. They presumed to sit in judgment over Him, when in fact it was the other way around. And people have been tragically been repeating the error of those religious leaders to this day. Perhaps this morning you're not a Christian. And you're thinking, I've never had the audacity to judge Jesus. I certainly wouldn't identify with the religious leaders that presumed to do so. Yet maybe you feel free to pick and choose which words of Jesus you like and which ones you can do without. Or perhaps you think Jesus was a good teacher, but it's just too much to believe he had the power to walk on water, let alone walk out of his own tomb. You might even think that he taught truth and performed miracles, but did so as a mere man, a prophet of sorts with a bit of power on temporary loan from God. Whatever the case, if anyone refuses to embrace the biblical Jesus, the Jesus who not only died for sins on the cross, but who rose physically from the dead, who was exalted to the right hand of God, exercises the authority of God, will judge all of humanity from the throne of God, and is in fact equal to God, Such a person has presumed to judge Jesus and will soberingly stand with the religious leaders of our text on the day of judgment. We hear a lot today about ending up on the wrong side of history. Nothing could possibly fit the bill more than this. Nothing could be more tragic. It's fitting then that I conclude by asking, whose side are you on? We all start on the wrong side, We all deserve God's judgment because we've all sinned. But God has provided the opportunity to change sides. It's not complicated or laborious. It simply involves turning from your sin filled self sufficiency to faith filled reliance on Jesus, believing that He alone can deliver you from divine judgment and entrusting yourself fully to Him and His rule. You might think of turning away, think of it as turning away from any loyalties to sin from self-rule and aligning yourself with him and his kingdom, receiving a newness of life that begins now and extends into eternity. At the end of the day, Jesus is the fork in the road when it comes to our eternal destinies. Perhaps you've heard the words of Jesus this morning and you sense their self-authenticating nature. Something inside of you says the words of Jesus are true. He is who he claimed to be. And I want to be sure I'm on his side when history is said and done. If that's you, I'd urge you to tell him now. Tell him you're turning to him, him alone and him completely as your only hope of standing with him rather than against him when he returns in judgment. Tell him that you're transferring your allegiance from this temporary world to his eternal kingdom. If you'll do that, the glorious, relief-filled reality is that your citizenship will be shifted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and rather than judgment leading to a joyless, eternal separation from God, you will experience a joy-filled, resurrection life with God forever. If you do this, please tell someone here. If you're thinking about doing this, please tell someone here. There might be some ideas we can unpack together. We want to provide any clarity, answer any questions, and offer any comfort we can. We'd be delighted to connect here today, or later over coffee, at lunch, by phone, through email, whatever you'd like. We just want you to know this Son of Man, the one who is seated at the right hand of power, the one who will return again on the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. And we long for you to know the rescue from sin and resurrection life that he alone can provide. Father, open the eyes of our hearts by the power of the Spirit to see your Son for who he truly is. Capture all of our hearts with a glorious image of the risen, exalted, reigning Christ, use it to comfort and strengthen and edify those of us who already believe, and use it to deeply convict, if necessary, even scare those who do not yet believe. Use these words from your Word here this morning in a powerful way that is beyond what we could even ask or imagine we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.